<laughs> Welcome to the Some Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Happy Tuesday. It's Tuesday. It's a fun Tuesday. Actually, kind of. Well, I'm still rebounding because we just had a conversation that made me laugh so hard. And then we went <laughs> right into hitting record and I'm like, I'm like hyperventilating and laughing at the same time. So you don't have much breath right now. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah, we'll get to that more later. Perhaps your cardiovascular system is a little hey! bit on the fritz. <laughs> don't take shots. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. We're gonna, we'll talk about it later. Uh, yeah, we're going to have some interesting updates. Um, but in more fun updates to start, we have moved on to the third iteration of the SWAT podcast outline. It is a big deal in our world. This is a ceremonious day. So yeah. we are on, we call these outlines the SWAT podcast three fast, three furious. <laughs> and hopefully, I mean, I really love doing this podcast with you. So hopefully we get to the point when we're like, I don't know, in our in our later years of life where we're yeah. doing the like 116 podcast, three fast, three furious. <laughs> uh, so yeah, hopefully we expand on this. But the second outline I just counted went up to 236 pages. I forget how much the first one uh, went up to and almost 90,000 words. Uh, most exercise physiology, some other things. I think that's a pretty uh, extensive, you know, outline of different things, like uh, things that we've talked about over time. I'm pretty much uh, really proud of us for doing that. The way we outline though, I'm sure other people would not be proud of us yeah. the way that we outline. So it's kind of a mess. Like if you, if you were particular at all about fonts <laughs> or style or colors, you would look at our podcast outline and be horrified. All different fonts, all different colors, all different styles. And there there's, I mean, there, we got numbers going on. We got letters going on. <laughs> we got bullet points going on. There's just not really this like cohesive organization system. And I'm coming around at first. I was like, yeah. David, we got to get our shit together. But I'm, kind of, I'm coming around to it. It's very like a free form sort of I think you've helped outlining. me a lot. I mean, if you look back at my history, so I remember in law school or in, and even before, my online system was atrocious from the outside. Like basically my approach was I would take a folder and just put a bunch of crumpled papers in it and like post-it notes and things and just write random things that came to mind. And that is kind of what the podcast outline looked like at first. And then you would season it with like a bunch of breadcrumbs and <laughs> potato chips and just like throw it in your book bag and it would become part of this like lawyer stew that somehow made you brilliant in the process. <laughs> well, at the bottom of the book bag, my entire life, my mom used to always have a big problem with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Editors don't never reach into David's book bag <laughs> or like car compartment or any sort of compartment which could contain stuff because- Contain food, <laughs> particularly. Well, because there's a lot of stickiness. Stuff. I mean, there's like mud and sticky things. I don't even yeah. want to, I like, I actually like to assume it's food and not the other products that go oh, into there. <laughs> yeah. Especially when I was going through puberty, who knows? <laughs> no, that, to be serious though, when I was going through puberty and living uh, on the Eastern shore of Maryland, we had a major ant problem at home. So one time I opened my book bag, there's just a colony of ants at the bottom of it. And I was just like, well, I'll deal with that in the future. And so there were just ants living in my book bag in my locker for quite a while. I'm really glad we're married because I don't think I've told you this story before, yeah. but in eighth grade, I was in chemistry class and I had just played a field hockey tournament and brought my book bag outside. Uh -huh. Of course I had all delicious, all kinds of like delicious snacks in my book bag and I put it down on the floor and I just see this ant colony start spreading Whoa. in class and I'm like trying to be covert about it. I'm like yeah. moving my legs about in class, like trying to stomp on the ants and keep them from spreading out and being that girl that's just like releasing yeah. ants all over the place. And then I just watched them go all over the class oh, and no. the teacher was like, where are these ants coming from? And I was like, gee, I don't know. Those are interesting ants. And it was one of the hardest moments in eighth grade where like I didn't feel like I fit in anyways yeah. and then I was this girl that brought ants into chemistry class how have I never heard that did you get found out like was it or did you like were you able to avoid I that? was able to avoid okay. it but then I went after that class yeah. you know I still had like six other classes and I was like do I go home sick like what do I do <laughs> so I went to the bathroom and just like shoved a bunch of water and I probably killed these poor ants by like oh. monsoon but it was a it was kind of a traumatizing situation <laughs> kind of reminds me so boys around that age often get like 
unintended erections just randomly that was you in the back of the class it's like oh no my ants are going on hopefully the teacher doesn't call trying to me. move my legs in all different directions not to make it noticeable yes think about baseball think about baseball think about baseball uh though i don't know how that would solve the ant problem um or if you really like baseball the erection problem <laughs> um so we were going back through the outline and i wanted to control f some words to see how this how this relates so to, for perspective what we, we don't outline like our specific topics of conversation in detail what we do is outline the scientific study in the general framework of what we want to talk about. In that freeform way uh, that we were saying, you've helped me a lot to make it like have bullet points and things like probably not coherent from an outside perspective, but it does get a lot of different types of words in it over time. A lot of quotes. So we wanted to bring a lot of quotes on yeah. here. Um, I feel like we just, between like the books and then like movies and TV shows that we watch, it's, it's kind of fun to work those quotes in. But we went back through, what was the first word that you control left? <laughs> I control left sex uh, first. Not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> but actually it is relevant to uh, a lot of people reach out and in their very, 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 very kind feedback, they're like part of the reason they like it is that we talk about things that other people might not talk about like sex, you know, because they, all the studies say people think about sex all the freaking time. And so why aren't we talking about it all the time? It's something that people think about and just have to stay inside their own heads. Let's put it out in the open. Um, much like those, uh, middle school erections. Perhaps. <laughs> so that word was in the podcast outline 94 times. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot, a lot. But actually, so then the next word you can draw up is fun, which was 92 times. And there's a shocking like parallel to the two. That's I wonder horrible. how many times the two went together. You should have searched them side by side and see what happened. <laughs> That's so uh, insightful. Uh, third, the next one I searched was lactate, which was twenty-one times. Pretty, that's a pretty good number. That's pretty high. We should have uh, searched boogeyman right alongside that because that's been my current like catchphrase recently. Yeah. Lactate, not the boogeyman. And uh, yeah, we should see. I love that boogeyman is a great thing. The boogie person is more appropriate. I agree. I was like, why are we gender? Why are we gendering <laughs> this? I like that. Um, yeah, and it's also interesting because like lactate is how we've talked about training intensity a lot, but I think it's a place that would show our evolution over time. Like it wouldn't necessarily be something that we talked a ton about five years ago. Um, and this is a place where the research has really informed our, our approach. Um, and then the next one I thought was menstrual, which is 27 times. That's a pretty good number. That's pretty good, but I'm going to say that's not high enough. Really? I do, Yeah. Yeah. You know, I spend a lot of my time like, you know, doing research or, or doing work related to the menstrual cycle. So we need to boost that a little bit more. That being said, I think there's a lot, a lot of times I talk about the menstrual cycle and I use the term period or I use yeah. like other terms to describe it. So perhaps that's what we're getting at there, but we should boost that. No, a period more. was 35 times. So but the period could also be other things too. That's like true. I'm sure we've talked about like like training periods or oh you're right yeah we're, we're probably and it's actually with a lot of these like fun i'm pretty sure it could be fun like <laughs> how much have we talked about like a fund of knowledge granted i feel like we wouldn't write that in our podcast outline that's too formal yeah we I, would never write fund of knowledge in our podcast outline i don't think that would make it in and then the final one which is going to spur a little bit of a discussion was love which was a grand total of 215 times do you think that was our biggest word like the the word that we use the most the uh, there might be some like <laughs> prepositions well, I was gonna, well duh but like you know like <laughs> words outside of prepositions that we use the most <laughs> you like when i'm just a total smart ass and i'm like hey i have the answer um classic yeah. classic lawyer reaching into his book bag of snacks <laughs> oh yeah old snacks moldy snacks um but yeah no, i imagine it is our most used word and it might even be our most used word on the podcast in general that's like a bigger theme perhaps well i was gonna say when we speak a lot i think my common catchphrase to you is i love that yes. and actually i've seen in reviews people just write for podcast reviews i love that and i think it's it's a catch getting at the fact that we say that all the yeah. time but it's true because i mean you talk and i'm like yeah i love that so it also encompasses i feel like just our overall life view and view about each other too. and something i hope we bring to every 
everyone. It's like, you can say I love that because I do fucking love that. Actually, I was listening to you on the Troll Runner Nation podcast. Actually, everyone go back and listen to that. It was their last episode where Megan was talking about all these different training things, primarily female athlete physiology. Um, and at first she was like, you know, that's a really good question. And it was like, that's a great question. It's like, that question is the greatest thing that has ever happened in human existence. I probably said it 15 times. Okay. That being said, I get interviewed on a lot of podcasts and they yeah. were asking mind-blowingly good questions. Yeah. And so I felt like I had to acknowledge that. But the problem was they kept asking better and better <laughs> and better questions. And because I acknowledged the first one, yeah. I was like, but this is the question of all questions. How can I not say that? So I did say that a lot. And I, I actually went back and listened to it just because sometimes I like to go back and listen and just, I don't know, like get a general sense of how things are, how many times I say yeah. that phrase. And it was, it was a lot. And to quell your anxiety too. I think either way, I put out an article online this morning and I read through it. How many times do you think I read through that? Oh, so many times. Actually, I was like, David, get off the toilet reading. So you like to read that article on your phone while in the bathroom and you were taking forever in there. We're recording our podcast late because you spent at least 30 minutes in the bathroom reviewing that article. Mostly adding disclaimers. Actually, I added a sentence that I don't think you saw. Um, play that funky disclaimer music, <laughs> lawyer boy. <laughs> um, yeah. So actually what I do is, so once you read something on the computer, at least for me, I, it starts to blend together. Like I read over things that I've read before. I don't really see it. So I like to change context, whether that's reading out loud or reading on my phone. So I like to read on my phone and a great place to do that is on the toilet. So I'm reading and editing on my phone while, you know, not doing anything. I'm just using it as a, uh, a convenient chair in a comfortable position. So um, anytime you read one of my articles out there in the world, know that that is partially toilet influenced. So I actually took a writing class and it was one of the my most favorite classes I've taken so far. I've taken a lot of classes and, yes. and the writing class I think was one of the most helpful scientific writing. And that was actually one of their suggestions was Whoa. to read. So when you're reviewing to read across different forms or different mediums. So like, even if if you're reading on like Microsoft Word to flip it to Google Docs or to flip it to even a different tablet or device or read it out loud. Because I know I've read some papers so many times that it's my, my brain just skips over yeah. everything. Yeah. And so instead of edits, you have edge shits. <laughs> that, that, that whole time you were talking, I was like, think of a pun, think of a pun, I think th- of a pun. I thought you were going to go back to prepositions and I was like, <laughs> I'm going to get schooled on prepositions once again. Um, so on that bigger topic of love and embracing love and everything it entails was this quote, from Matt Haig's How to Stop Time, an incredible book that I recommend wholeheartedly um, that I just read last week. And it was this. We kissed and I closed my eyes and inhaled lavender in her. And I felt so terrified and so in love that I realized they, the terror, the love, were one in the same thing. That is so beautiful. So we spent some time apart last week and you sent that to me over text message. Yeah. And I got all the feely feels on that. <laughs> also, I'm pretty sure you should edit that for me and say, we kissed and I closed my eyes and inhaled horrible smells and her. And I felt <laughs> so in love. That, that would be like how you modify that for our relationship. What would the smells be, do you think? Just just wafts of sweat and podcast. I mean, when we podcast, we sweat a lot. So there's, there's some solid stench. Do you think you're more funk or stank? Oh, good question. <laughs> is that a good question? That's a great, I mean... Fantastic question. We're getting that. We're, we're getting this. We're coming full circle. Such a full circle. You don't have to it was answer such that. Such a good question. You're stank, by the no, way. No, no, no. I do have to answer that. <laughs> I'm going funk. Oh. Oh, well, I need to. I need to update my uh, olfactory judgment calls. Apparently. But um, I. I mean, I think I thought about that quote a lot, though, because I. I mean, sometimes I do feel a lot of like fear as it relates to love, which I think yeah. is an interesting thing. And I think the more that I think about them being like on, like to be able to love so, someone so much is is a gift but it also comes with that fear too. And I think that means like, just keep loving, yeah. like, you know, don't let that fear overpower things. But this is like a very, very small, like, 
conversation as it relates to fear. Yeah. But we were, you know, we spent time apart. I was um, in Philly and you had to come back here and take care of Addie for like four days. Yeah. So we spent time apart. And it was the first time that we spent like a substantial amount of time apart since the pandemic. Yeah. Like we've been together like every waking second. It was kind of terrible. Outside of like me going to this co-working space, like yeah. all the time. I feel like very odd. Wait, it was terrible? To be apart from you. Oh, <laughs> I, what, thought you meant, I thought you meant it was kind of terrible to spend every waking second together. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, the opposite. I would get to the evening and like while I'm working, the day passes, right? And I would get to the evening and be like, what the fuck do I do now? <laughs> Just kind of like, where's my friend? Um, which I'm not sure. I, I think it's healthy. It feels healthy, but uh, you know, it was very odd and I didn't like it at all being apart. It was very odd. Also, I found myself getting to the evenings and just being like, well, I guess it's dessert time. Like it was like, <laughs> I just was so excited for food because it yeah. was like the only other exciting thing to like, to look forward to. But during this time, I like started having these fears about like what would happen, like if things would happen to you while yeah. I was gone. And I've never, I mean, we've used to spend, we were long distance for a year when I was in med school yeah. and I never quite had, I mean, I of course like, you know, was concerned about you and your safety as you were doing different things. But I think this fear of like something happening to you while I'm gone is something that's totally new for me. Well, I also think our love has grown, you know, in the that's sense true that too. Like, yeah. we've been together. So it comes with a higher fear, you know, like yeah, as yeah. that love grows, the fear bar grows right alongside well, it. I mean, to yeah. the point that like, I couldn't imagine life. And um, actually, yeah, when I took off on the flight, I remember thinking, and this came up uh, just briefly was, you know, well, the plane has Wi-Fi, so if the plane's going down, I'm just going to text Megan. Um, I guess I didn't want to call you to like interrupt your evening or whatever. <laughs> and I was going to say, I love you so much. Please move on as quickly as you can. <laughs> that makes me – That makes, there's something about that that makes me so sad. But also, part of my fear, though, yeah. is, is that something's going to happen to me, and within two weeks, you're going to remarry someone who, like – cooks and cleans and bangs oh. and like makes a five-star linguine and does like all of these things and i want you i think there's i don't know there's something weird that like i would want you of course to move on but i have very specific <laughs> stipulations i have yeah very high standards for I'm how you sure. would have to well no it's interesting I have high standards, but I don't want them to be like exceptionally <laughs> awesome standards where you're like, oh man, I was, I was married to Megan for so long. What a, what a waste. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I really don't think I'd move on. Um, I would just move on with a number of desserts as you were saying. I'd be, no, like, but I would want you to move on. I just have, you would have to follow the exact criteria. I don't know. I think it'd be like American pie in here. It'd be me eating pies and also doing other things with pies. Oh, that's gross as shit. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, and also it was an interesting reflection reflection on relationships during COVID in general. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there reading this that are probably go have gone through really difficult times. In fact, we did at the beginning of COVID that we've talked about. That's why the podcast formed in the first place. And that stemmed even with us having spent so much of our time together before that. Like we would often spend every waking moment together on the weekends um, before COVID. But, you know, that that pressure cooker of like never leaving each other's sight and everything else was tough on us. I imagine it was really tough on like every relationship, really. I agree. And I think it's tough in different ways too. Yeah. Like I think about how it's tough um, on people in partnerships or maybe people who are out there dating or single or asexual or people, you know, just in all different like life circumstances yeah. and how tough the pandemic is in different ways. And I got curious about this because we were having this conversation. I was having some conversations with athletes yeah. too. And I started to get curious about it. I was like, well, certainly someone must have, I feel like right now we are at the point where like 
basically like everything is studied in relationship to COVID. Yeah. Like you can Google COVID and a word and it's probably studied, which is great. Like we need to understand, I think, you know, you at some point will look back on this period of history and like use it to think about and how we inform future yeah, decisions. Yeah, it's a globally shared trauma in a way that's unique in human history. Okay. But this is one of my favorite studies that I found. Yeah. It's in the journal Sexology. Oh. What a great journal name, <laughs> Sexologies. Like if I could publish in Sexologies, my career would be made. Yeah, go for it. We should actually, we should figure out some way a training article can get in Sexologies. Next to Oh, let's, I, I I have lots of hypotheses. Oh, great. Let's yes. do it. Yeah. Okay. Actually, I saw Outside had an article title that was, Can Training Help Your Sex? And uh, I thought it was a great clickbait style article. And I'm also very curious. I'm like, I don't know about that. I feel like real hard training, probably not doing great things for sex there. I was going to say, I think there's an interesting balance there between training, you know, I don't know, X number of hours a week versus training 2x number of hours per week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the things it does to sex hormones alone, like um, we're going to talk briefly about the little calf injury I had. And the way my approach to the world changed after a few days, it's like clearly my testosterone was going up because every time someone like commented something on the internet, I'd be like, do you want to fight, motherfucker? <laughs> Whereas usually I'm like, you're the best. Bring it on. Okay, so the study was done in 2021. Also, I think, um, so this is a meta-analysis in 2021. And I think 2021 is interesting because obviously the pandemic has continued. Yeah. And I think as the pandemic has continued, there's different and interesting constraints on relationships. Definitely. So this was flashback to 2021, a meta-analysis. Um, this meta-analysis, which is a study of, of many studies, found that sexual activity um, average was reduced with a frequency of 4.4 times. Wow during the pandemic. So a decrease um, in sexual activity during the pandemic. And I think that makes sense to me on many levels. You think yeah. about like all the different constraints that the pandemic provides, especially for people not in an established partnership. Definitely. But even for people in an established partnership, I think there's interesting constraints about like personal space and privacy and anxiety and any number of things. And I just, I thought it was an interesting and curious reflection of the literature. Yeah. And um, I've talked about Endless Honeymoon podcast before, but the reason I do is they, they do a lot of relationship questions. And and so many of the questions are about like relationship struggles during uh, COVID. And in fact, uh, the the hosts, one of their ongoing bits is that they essentially they hate each other because <laughs> of COVID um, because like the relationship formed in a basis when you spend more time apart and that can be really hard. And then you think about things like sex. It's like sexual arousal is not a base state. So like if you're around a bunch of like naked people all the time, eventually like you're not just going to be aroused all the time. And similarly, like if you're around your partner all the time and you're not changing things up or making those efforts, you can see that that might change like fundamentally over the course of a year or two. Yeah, absolutely. And I got curious. I was like, okay, well, what are some of these mechanisms that might be contributing yeah. to this? And there was an interesting study. This was done in Italy and about 1500 participants um, in 2021 as well, published in the journal Urology. Oh. Way less boring. I would much rather publish in sexology than urology. <laughs> it's um, so lame. But it was a cool study. So they found, um, so they were essentially looking at what some of these factors might be. Um, so the highest one was poor privacy, which mm -hmm. makes a ton of sense. Like people being, you know, you're just hard to get outside the house, hard to have alone time inside yeah. and apartment, wherever um, people are staying. The other was lack of psychological stimuli, which makes sense. And the last one was lack of desire. Yeah. And what I found most curious was actually they looked at the, the relationships between gender uh -huh. and they found that men were most interested, were most impacted by the lack of desire. Wow. So men had reduced desire relative to women or relative to their baselines. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, it gets back to how we all experience the world so differently. Um, <laughs> reminds me a little bit. So I used to listen on the way to high school uh, to sports radio. There mm -hmm. was uh, people that are listening that are on the East Coast probably have heard of the junkies. In retrospect, it was uh, terrible misogynistic bullshit a lot of the time. Uh, but at the at the time, it was interesting. Um, I didn't know what I was talking about. And they often talked about, and it like imprinted on my like naive uh, virgin brain, 
they talked about strange. So even though they were all married, they were men that all were after the strange. Ooh, I like that concept. Go after the strange. <laughs> well, actually, but I think they were using it to basically justify like oh, like ideas men about doing cheating. like horrible stuff or ideas about cheating. Essentially, oh, gross. Um, yeah, it was pretty gross, but also interesting and maybe tying to some like predispositions that across, I mean, every gender is, every person is different and generalizing doesn't usually work, but it's interesting. Well, I think, and that's, what's interesting about this study is we're basically compiling these results into one number, but when you look at it, it's actually like, you look at the, the um, distribution and there's, you know, obviously people on like all different places in terms of how people think about things. But one of my favorite quotes actually from this article was the article said, well, Overwhelming situations can also lead to unexpected behaviors oh. to the idea that people were practicing all different kinds. Some people were practicing all different kinds of sexual behaviors during this time as a result of like being overwhelmed or cooped up or just looking for something to do or, you know, having changes in sexual desire. Yeah. Um, so interesting. And, it, you know, the idea between love and fear being connected, it's like these general big principles about love and like moving on and different things. It's also the idea of like anything you love and you invest yourself a lot in can bring up a lot of fear and like running injuries for example you can be if you really love it it can be so scary and i've seen athletes that are usually so well adjusted and so smart and everything is is very by the book will have the slightest nibble for the first time and they will go kind of bonkers about everything in life and the idea is that that fear mechanism is being triggered but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing i think in fact that means it's a, probably a really good thing i agree and i think in, in way, I think in some ways, like that can be healthy. Like, yeah. you know, that love is a really powerful thing. I also think of other situations in which it's not. I think about people pleasing. Uh -huh. Like, I love to people please. And right alongside that love of people pleasing comes the fear, like, associated okay. with it. And I think that's one situation in which, like, maybe both of those are not good things. <laughs> it's so true. Um, so, th this all started with a book quote. So, you can probably tell that I'm back and using the sauna again for the first time in a while. Uh, that, it's been very fun. It gives me my time to read. Uh, big fan. I miss the sauna. We used to sit yeah. in there and read books side by side. I can't, I can't do it right now with my heart. And I'm like, I just wish I could sit somewhere and read for 20. Oh, I should just start like reading for 20 minutes in a space in our house. And be <laughs> yeah. like, this is sauna time, even though there's no heat involved. <laughs> yeah. We'll just get like a portable microwave and put you under it. Um, also another random thing uh, is I've been listening to Hardcore History When I Run by Dan Carlin. A lot of people have probably heard it. It's like in a fantastic history podcast. Um, and it makes running so fun for me. Like for, for whatever reason, I usually don't love listening to podcasts when I run. I usually listen to music. But this podcast transports me to distant lands and gives me so much gratitude to being to be where I am and not where the people that are being talked about are, which is basically everywhere in history is kind of a nightmare. Well, I love, so what was the log update that you gave as, so you gave a great training log update about running and oh. listening to this. Do you remember what it was? Because I, I logged into there yesterday and I was like, this is one of the all-time greatest log updates I've had. And I've had a lot of log updates well, so from I athletes. I don't really know much about Roman history. And this was about the Romans and the Celtic people. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, you know, felt really great, body smooth, uh, a lot of gratitude listening to uh, the stories about Julius Caesar absolutely trucking the Celts. <laughs> um, very sad. Uh, not, not. A, but I think 2,000 years later, we can move move on past the, the human loss. Um, but yeah, it's also just interesting to think about that, like specific human tragedy that's involved so much in history. And especially with, you know, you look at current events and you see what's going on with Ukraine, let's say. And it's like, thinking of make sure we're all thinking about the specific human tragedies involved and not just you know the geopolitical risk game that i think especially the foreign policy apparatus like 
likes to frame conversations in. I totally agree. And I think I thought about this so much too. So the other night we watched the movie Torn. Um, yes. It's a Disney movie about climbing, um, about Alex Lowe, who had a tragic accident. Actually, he was skiing um, when he had the accident in an avalanche and unfortunately passed away. And yeah. it's a story, it's it's made by his son um, and Max Lowe. And it's a story about how the family like rebounded and celebrated him and just struggled also yeah. during this process. But I think as I was watching that, it made me think about the value of the human life. Like yeah. here is this family putting together a documentary about how beautiful his life was and, you know, the family that he had and the people that he touched. But we could do that for almost every single person, yeah. like mentioned in the tragedies and the hardcore history. And those just become statistics after a while, like how many thousands or even in some yeah. cases, millions of people died. And you can make documentaries like Torn for every single one of those people. Yeah. And it's a place where the connection between love and fear is so important. It's like, if you lose sight of the individual like stories of love and triumph and everything else of people, you lose sight of the fear of loss of things like war. Um, and, you know, everyone that talks about war in an academic way really needs to start, like, it needs to dig down in that really deeply. And it's one reason I love Dan Carlin and Hardcore History is because he really does emphasize that human story. Um, but Torn is an amazing movie that we recommend um, if you're if you're ready for uh, your feels to be hit. Um, Actually, after we watched it, you were like, I think I'm good to watch that once. And yeah. I'm good not to watch it. We, you had your feels hit and you're like, I don't need to hit that button again. Yes, um, but it hit that button real nice. Um, but it, it's also a great meditation on love because, um, you know, after Alex died, the the family and as they moved on, it's a story that's been told a million times. So this isn't really a spoiler. Um, you know, the way that their love evolved was so beautiful and it showed this multifaceted nature of love and the fear and that you're still putting yourself out there and everything else. Um, but I thought another thing that we watched was really interesting in that context too, which was Ali Wong's stand-up special. So very different from Torn. Very different from Torn. But I think a lot of the same principles about love. And it's extremely raunchy if you're into that sort of thing. Um, but you know, Ali Wong's absolutely brilliant. So she's doing it for a reason. And her basic thesis in this pot, it seemed like I want to cheat on my husband is basically what she was saying in most of her jokes. It was and pretty wild. She did that for about 50 minutes. Yeah. Like it was not like it wasn't like a lot of um, comics have diversions when they talk. And she yeah. had one diversion about Hello Kitty. Yeah. And then otherwise, it was about 50 minutes of that raunchy kind of like the raunchy, raunchy comedy she's known for under the context and under the guise of I want to cheat on my husband. Yeah. Um, and then the way she went, I was like, I was watching this at the time. I was like, how is she going to land this plane? It's like the, one of the planes that is trying to land in a hurricane. I'm like, it's like going side to side. I don't really understand understand what she's saying. It seems kind of mean spirited. And you'd be texting me like, move on, move on. I'm yeah, yeah. trying to land. <laughs> oh my God. And uh, what she said at the end and, and the little conclusion is that, um, that the idea is she wants to, when she wants a, a husband or supporter, a partner um, that lets her be herself and celebrates her and also calls her on her shit. And so essentially what she was doing with that time she was talking about cheating on him was she was being herself and saying, in the in saying that she wanted to cheat on him, she was saying that she is absolutely devoted and never would, um, because she was being herself as she was, you know, making these raunchy jokes. And I think it was one of the, one of the cooler examples of, um, you know, flipping expectations on their head to describe how love can be so complex. And what I love about that, there goes our, our buzzword, yes. is the idea that it's pretty complex to weave. So it's pretty complex to expect the listener to understand that's where it's building. And that's what the the main point of the show is. And that's why she spent 50 minutes doing these jokes Yeah, and she does it anyways. And I think that's something that's very cool is, is like respecting the art, respecting the craft and not necessarily dumbing it down for people either. Yeah. And I think I respect the heck out of the fact that she did that. Yeah. And otherwise it was just amazing and had us laughing a ton. Okay. So 
Uh, transition time to, uh, you know, people say the heart is associated with love. So do you want to talk about heart stuff? I mean, real quick? we were, we had some like stuff in the podcast outline to talk about this yesterday and then yeah. things turned like things wildly shifted from our expectations. I'm okay to talk about it, but we can talk about this more later. Yeah. You haven't fully processed yet. So let's keep it short. Yeah. Um, but just in the spirit of full transparency, you had your follow-up cardiac MRI yesterday. It was my left ventricle picture day yesterday. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's how I was calling it. I, I felt like it was a little more kind than saying I'm going into an MRI scan yeah so I went into that and I was like I feel fly as hell yeah I was like I was going into picture day and I was like look at my new clothes look at my uh -huh. shiny new hair I'm gonna crush this you well, actually talked about like putting a bow in your hair as if it's before a track race like you would do back at Duke well I felt like I was tapering going yeah. into this because I was like I really need my left ventricle to be good and Sunday I had a very relaxing day um basically You're doing like, a coffee taper even like I, yeah exactly I was like anything that could get this heart looking fly yeah I'm gonna do and I think what I what I thought about too is is like the prior 10 days leading into the MRI, I actually felt quite good. I was like, yeah. I don't have heart pain anymore. I'm feeling much better. But I think I had forgotten about the fact that my heart had hurt for an entire two and a half month period, which yeah. is a long time, a long time. for the heart to hurt, uh, kind of a disconcerting amount of time. So I was expecting the MRI to be clear and it did not look amazing. Yeah. I think athletes will identify with this. So you logged onto your portal um, and saw the update, saw the result. Well, I just randomly logged on oh, the I portal. Mean, it was, I mean, it, but it was eight hours after a complicated cardiac MRI. So I was like, oh, surely like- That takes three hours, That right? takes three hours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like, surely there's not going to be anything on here because yeah. it takes a long time to read these. Like maybe my, my, probably my doctor would call me. And the results were right there. And I was like, do I click on those results? And I was like, of course I do. Yeah. So I clicked on the results and it just- I saw some words and it was like, this is not great. Yeah. So, so we're still processing those yeah. words. And so waiting to hear, I mean, I still haven't even heard from my doctor yet. Yeah. So it's, and I think that's some of, one of the challenging things about the medical system is sometimes they res release results on a portal, but, and I, I, I feel before actually I was always like, yeah, release the results. I want to see them. And I think there actually is something to be said about, you know, not releasing results before a doctor signs off on them and, and talks to you about them. So yeah. Yeah. So we're still in the processing mode. How are you feeling right now? Do you have any hope? Do you have any hope? Uh, yeah. Are, I, we, are we just kind of hopeless? What, I don't know if do hope is the right word. Yeah. I have belief, but believe. maybe not expectations. Okay. I like that. Yeah. You have like a believe with it with the asterisk. Yes. To, that should be our Ted Lasso thing. Believe <laughs> asterisks. Uh, unless see, you have like severe heart disease. See entire paragraph below. Yeah, oh exactly. Well, I love you so much and I'm so proud of you and I'm just... Yeah, so sorry you've gone through this. I mean, last night we were in the middle of processing and Megan wakes up and, you know, she's going through it and I give her a massage and then I'm like, I'll move to the other room to sleep. And, and I was actually kind of pissed at you. I was like, no, you're going to park your butt right here and support me as I go through it. Hey, archery. I gave you a 30 minute massage I know, before you did. that. But I was also kind of like, now you're going to peace out. <laughs> True. So you come back up for some reason with a fizzy water and just like, <laughs> right outside the door I was sleeping in. I was like, it wasn't, that's... it was all the way from bed. So I dispute that characterization. No, no way. But I did come back to bed. <laughs> um, I realized well, it the was like, my okay, ways. it was, I was all the way on like the other side of the other room. It was at yeah. least 30 feet away from you, but you did come back to bed. And I, I did, that was not my intention when I opened a fizzy water. I truly just wanted to like quell the thoughts I was having at midnight with some delicious fizzy water. Yeah. You know, I was going, I'm, I am going through it too. Like, it sucks. You're currently playing through pain. So yeah, all the listeners out there, give it up for Megan, who <laughs> is like 
going through maybe the worst type of thing an athlete can can see in this process and um you know is recording a podcast the next day where we're talking a lot about training theory oh i had one thought at midnight no actually i don't mind i've largely gotten over that i actually love talking about training theory i think the science is amazing i love coaching athletes like i there's a a brief brief maybe like a few day period where i struggled with that stuff but i've been living vicariously through athletes through training discussions it's been great but i did have a brief moment at midnight last night where i was like how the heck am i gonna record a podcast (laughs) how is this going to happen we do need to bring energy and love um so but it's healing it's yeah yeah, it's actually i mean now that we're into this i'm like this is great this is healing i like it but (laughs) not literally healing figuratively healing literally you're gonna need some like major shit i don't know what's going on here but i the reason we so i put the cardiac mri in the podcast outline not knowing yesterday what the results were going to yeah we didn't think we're gonna have it back yet (laughs) i didn't think i was gonna have to talk about worsening myocarditis but here we are but the reason i put the cardiac mri in the outline is because i spent a lot of time in there obviously it takes a long time to do the scan but you do a series of breath holds in the scan that involve deep breathing and that's to get the heart heart static so the mri machine can actually image the heart Mm -hmm. it's very hard to image something that's beating um, and contracting in an mri scan but the way they do this it actually made me think a lot about the power of breathing and the science of breathing and how important it is for the human body. And I think we should do a full podcast discussion on that at some point. Yeah, we definitely should. Uh, that being said, you're you're finding a very silver lining to your like trauma here. Not only the result, but the fact that you had to sit in like a sarcophagus with no peeing, no doing anything other than these breath holds for quite a while. Um, seems like a, a pretty terrible day all around that you went through. It's kind of like a punked up version of meditation when oh, you're yeah. in there because the MRI machine, it has this like, this voice and it goes breathe in breathe out yeah hold and then the the car the mri machine is just like beep, 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 beep. <laughs> and i learned to count the beeps um, oh. during my breath holds uh because it was rhythmic and yeah. that's where i started thinking about the performance gains from this so i was in MRI, mri machine and i was like yo i'm gonna crush some training in the coming months i'm gonna think about breath yeah. i'm gonna think about breathing and breath holds and uh just the power of this but i do actually really want to read the book breath by james yeah. Nestor, and we'll do a full podcast summary on that coming up uh, yeah i absolutely love that so just uh, so in awe of you and how you're able to go through all this and, you know, I'll be there for you, except occasionally when I go to the other room at night, <laughs> but you are feeling better overall yeah, relative I do feel much to better. how you yeah. felt like a month ago. So that's, maybe there is some brightness in the horizon, you know, the Plaquenil that we mentioned that she's on for. Oh, I think it's mission. working. Yeah. And so we also got something like 25 listeners reached out and told us their Plaquenil stories. Um, I think we responded to everyone. Thank you so much. They all look great. So, um, I mean, I think it does give us hope about the medication path, uh, though. <laughs> perhaps we need to throw more fuel in that fire for a bit. Honestly, how I feel now though, is very similar to the racing experience. Uh-huh. It's kind of like running a hundred miler and during that hundred miler, just going like navigating through such like sucky times yeah. and being like, what is going on with my body? And you finish and you're like, never again. And then five minutes later after that feeling, you know, after you're just like sitting there, you're like, I'm going to do this again. I'm totally <laughs> good. And that's how I feel like after 10 days of not having pain after two and a half months, I'm yeah. like, I'm so good. I'm healed. I'm fine. And <laughs> it's just, it's interesting to think about that reflection and how sometimes as athletes, we do have these short-term like memory lapses for better or for worse. Yeah. Like I think sometimes there's a lot of traits in that that can make for a strong athlete. And then sometimes it makes you think your heart's doing well when it's not. I think it's a necessary survival mechanism. Um, Perhaps. You know, especially when it involves like athletic training, uh, maybe less so, maybe it's actually like a lack of survival mechanism. It's a death mechanism when you're thinking about the heart, <laughs> maybe. Um, but I think overall this health journey does have parallels to everything runners go through, like mm-hmm. the fear and love as we were talking about, also the waiting game and how difficult it is to know 
what your injury is while you're going through it. And like, there's you're often athletes are in this sort of limbo. You, hopefully, it's not about the heart. Um, but an example of a much like one one trillionth of the stakes is um, last weekend. I got a calf injury, and I totally fucking deserved it. <laughs> it was so bad. I don't know about that, but I also wouldn't argue. I think it was probably more a niggle than an yeah. injury. So I don't know. Do we have like a textbook but, term for what's a niggle versus what's an injury? I guess the, that's the point. In the waiting game, it felt like an injury, though I knew it was a niggle because I've been very lucky. And mm-hmm. I assume, as I told, I was talking to Claire Gallagher about it, and I was like, oh, I got brontosaurus bones. I'll be okay. Um, well, I was gonna say, well, in the waiting game, it probably feels like a calf amputation. Yeah. And, you know, in reality, it might be a niggle. And I think I mean, that's, me that's the challenging thing about, but you walk like that whenever anything. You're like Addy. <laughs> so whenever Addy has like a sore paw, she's like hopping on three legs. Yeah. And you do the same thing. Like, you know, you hurt your toe a little bit. And you're <laughs> <laughs> so not true. able to put weight around it around the house. <laughs> I mean, okay. That being said, you are tough as nails, but you do like to like not weight bear on things that hurt. I'm the toughest baby in all the land, I think is the big lesson here. Um, but I totally deserved it uh, just for a little background. Um, I was getting ready to run. I was I was in, on the East Coast with Megan. And I was like, oh, Megan, what shoes should I wear? So I had a pair of Hoka Evo Speed Goats for a Tron, or I had a pair of Saucony Endorphin Speeds, which are carbon or nylon plated. So they have a nylon plate in there. Um, road shoes that I hadn't really run in much. And she's like, oh, definitely the Evo Speed Goats. Of course, I put on the sock, the Sauconies immediately. And then she's and then she's like, oh, what? Or, and I was like, you know, what? I looked at my training plan. What run should I do? And it was like 13 or 14 mile trail run, just nice and easy. And what run did I end up doing? I went and tried to take the segment on this iconic loop in these A shoes. road loop yeah. in carbon shoes. Totally different than the training plan. Yeah. And uh, of course, uh, had, a, had a setback. And, and fortunately, it ended up not being too severe uh, long term. But it reminds me that even I, after all this time, need a constant reminder of it. <laughs> Listen to coach. Listen oh. to coach Megan. Oh, thanks. Well, I try. I'm, this is the thing, actually, with how I coach is I try never to be that like coach that's like I told you so. Yeah. Like I don't think. I mean, I hope that through that process, it was just love and support and giving you the pieces to to like you know think about this for the future, but not the like I told you so. You yeah. should stuck with those shoes. Well, I think I actually texted you. You told me so <laughs> as it happened, as I was walking back and like, hey Megan, could you pick me up immediately? Um, but you know, I'm actually very fortunate in a broader sense, and this is going to go into a broader conversation about um, training theory, to be mostly durable. Right? You are very durable. Yeah. And I, who knows why? Like most, probably it's mostly genetics. Well, I think you treat your body very well too. So I think, I mean, I think there's, I think it's probably a combination. You probably have brontosaurus genetics yeah. and you also treat your body very well. And it's a, it's a winning combination. Yeah. You know, I think that we always have a tendency to want to tie our behaviors to it, but you treat your body better than I do and yeah, always do. And you treat it like throughout this myocarditis thing, you've barely done anything. You've been like the ideal patient and you had a setback, right? And it's like, the reason I, I say to you all the time, it's like, I wish I could take this and put it into my heart. Oh, and, thank you. Yeah. you know, one is to take the pain away from you, but two is, I just feel like my heart would handle it. I was going to say, you, you'd be healed in a day. <laughs> no, not a day, but like- three, Oh, probably a day. No, th- I'm fine with three months off. Just like give that brontosaurus the heart issues, right? Don't give it to the like, the precious raptor that <laughs> runs so fast and is so beautiful, but also, you know, can get trucked by the brontosaurus sometimes. <laughs> um, but, you know, th- that- broader point about like health and uncertainty and not knowing it, I think is extremely relevant for training theory. Um, But the problem is injuries don't sell books. Injuries don't sell articles. In fact, whenever I write an article on injuries or anything like that, they're some of the lowest clicked articles, even though they're the most important topic. Um, And then you think about our conversations in the last couple of weeks, we talked about Norwegian training. We talked about Nils Vanderpoel's training. And 
never once did we mention injury in that whole talk at the time, nor do you see that in exercise physiology studies where we're just measuring training interventions. What about all the people that fucking break, which is basically every runner that's put on these systems and the only ones that don't break end up being champions, sure. But what about everyone else? Well, I, I totally agree with that. But also caveat, you do add disclaimers while you're sitting there on the toilet yeah. about these concepts. So like I, what I like about your Tronar Magazine articles is you'll talk about these big training concepts and add the disclaimer in there. But I wonder how often as readers go through it, it becomes an oversight, like, oh, disclaimer, oh, yeah. disclaimer. But in reality, I think that disclaimer is the crux of, really the crux of the training theory and article for a large majority of the athletes. And more generally, I mean, yeah. if you look at the underlying studies that we often talk about on here, you know, you're alter you're measuring one variable, right? Like you're measuring one intervention. And so when we're talking, what they're measuring almost always is something like fitness via VO2 max, via running economy, whatever, um, or all the sorts of variables. They are almost never reporting on the dropout rates because they're not doing like real training interventions over time. This is something that coaches know for sure and training theory goes into, but exercise physiology often misses. And you can read an exercise physiology textbook or an exercise physiology study or any article on it and assume that injuries don't even exist and that setbacks don't exist. But it is a ubiquitous part of the journey of a runner. Even someone that is durable like I am deals with things and has to be careful and has to listen to coach. But like most people are much less durable genetically and they need to think about this constantly and how they're, you know, uh, instituting training principles into their approach. So like we talked about double threshold workouts, for example, double threshold workouts, great in theory, probably fucking atrocious in practice for uh, let's say 75% of athletes. And, and Especially, the, you know, female athletes too, yeah. heavily. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, maybe closer to 95% of female athletes. And that changes the way we have to talk about these topics. And so I, I think it gets back to how we incorporate things like biases and, you know, science in a complex world where, you know, we can't actually measure all the variables. And I think what's interesting about that injury variable is I think you could, and this is way too simplistic, but you could assign it a weight for yeah. different athletes. And for some athletes that's weighted probably almost 60, 70, 80% of, you know, how we think about and consider this like overarching training methodology. Yeah. And I think that becomes an important conversation. And I think in exercise physiology studies, if it's even included, it might be weighted five, 10%. Yeah. And that certainly doesn't reflect, I think the broader, athletic conversation. And I think that also gets at the idea too, that I think we really, and this is an issue in every single field yeah. is there's a disconnect between like th sometimes the researchers in what's actually happening in practice. And I think the more that we can like fill those gaps, the stronger the research and the, and the more generalizable the research becomes. Yeah. It's so interesting to think about like sustainability ends up being the most important metric in long-term growth. Right. And as you were saying that I was thinking about writing. Right. And, uh, I think with, and, and I always use that because it's something I think about a lot in my own life. And as you're, as I'm writing something, if I took a traditional approach, it might create sometimes a slightly better article, mm -hmm. maybe, or at least at first. But the problem is I would never have enjoyed writing enough and had enough fun and worth in the process to get to the point where, you know, a book publisher approaches us, let alone, you know, now where we have the opportunities we have. And like, so I think so much of it just becomes like, what actually is sustainable? Um, but if we're looking at, uh, how training theory is talked about, we might actually be misreading the signals we're getting. And I think we might be interpreting a lot of bias. Yes. And actually in the field of epidemiology, I don't think you can go a lecture without talking about bias. And so <laughs> it's kind of a joy that we're talking about that concept of like, you know, 
exercise physiology and training theory and bias, because yeah. I actually, I think there's a lot that exists here. And I think once you dive into it, some of the training principles to me make a lot more sense. Yeah. So the first form of bias that I see immediately is the idea of availability bias. So you published this amazing article on Norwegian training, yeah. but they are making their, their training and their data of publicly available for everyone to see, but not every training group thinks about that. Like I've never seen, and perhaps I'm not looking in the right places, but I've never seen anything to my knowledge coming out about, you know, Bowerman. What are yeah. they doing in their training? Yeah, what's, no, it's all what's Shelby Houlihan doing in training? What's, you know, what are some of the American groups doing in training? And some of them like NAZ Elite is a little bit more open with sharing yeah. what they're doing, but certainly some of these clubs and groups, we have no concept, yeah, no it's, clue. And it's so, all whispers. so we are just relying on the information that's made public or available, but how could that be different? And this is where some of the bias lies. How could that be different from, you know, what people are doing in other groups that aren't sharing their, that information? And like, what are the characteristics between the groups that make them more readily yeah. willing to share? And how, how true is all of it too? True. Exactly. Right? Like, yeah. You know, and about the Ingbertsons, the Norwegians, um, they've actually had scientific studies published about their training. It's like, uh, I'd be curious to know. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it's peer reviewed, but I'm also just curious to know how real is any of this shit we're reading, you know, in an in a exact sense for everyone. Yeah, if a physiologist is there for every session, um, but we don't know everything that's going on, let alone the problems when you start thinking about extras, like athletes might be doing, like the figure skater in Russia or Shelby Houlihan or anything like that, that really complicate things. Well, actually, I could see some incentive. So if an athlete is doping, I could see some incentive to make their training seem so much more wild yeah. because it's way more believable if they're running, you know, 150 miles a week and doing these wild workouts oh, that they would be having these progressions. And that's so smart. I mean, think about every training group that has been caught with systematic doping. So whether it's U.S. Postal Service, Team Sky, debatable, but probably Nike Oregon Project, debatable, but probably they all talked about marginal gains where the reason we're so much better is we do this little thing that other people aren't, might not be doing. And then we add up 15 of those and we're just way better. And what you found out is actually that little thing is a big thing. And that big thing is EPO. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I totally agree. The other form of bias, and this one I think is really curious to think about is confirmation bias. Yeah. So confirmation bias is the idea that, I don't know, we personally in our training, we like strides a lot. We like rest days a like lot. Eating a lot. <laughs> we like eating a lot. So whenever we see, and I think that you can apply this across all kinds of research, across all kinds of training theory, whenever we see that practiced in training, we're like, oh, look, yeah. someone's doing strides. Someone take, is taking rest days. Let's like research this. Let's explore this further. And you can see where that creates this obvious confirmation bias. Yeah. And maybe the a good example in, in trail running would be Jim Walmsley's training. So Jim Walmsley bursts onto the scene in 2016 and just dominates the sport and particularly Western states for, for until today. Um, and I think at first everyone's like, oh, well, this is his training. In fact, I have coached athletes that have said that to me and have, have said other things like that. And it makes sense because I think we all have this thing in our head at some level, at some base level that, okay, you're training for a hundred miles. That person that's doing the most training will be the most successful person. And Jim Wompsley was out there just absolutely crushing it. And of course that leads, of course it confirms our biases. Um, but then last year before Western States, dude was like cross training a bit, then did a very short, like six week build, if that, and comes out and runs one of what I think should have been the ultra performance of the year. And I think it was one of the best performances in human history at ultra distances off of like very little training. Well, very little training. So I, I think uh, asterisks there. So very little training means that he didn't train much in that six weeks before Western States. In that six weeks, he trained a metric yeah. crap ton. Like, but I think that actually, that point itself is instructive. Like Jim is able to handle that because yeah. he didn't get injured. He didn't get overtrained. Exactly. He was able to hop in. If I 
didn't train for that long and then hopped into, I think it was like 140 mile week on his first week back, my body would explode. Yeah, Every yeah. single cell in my body would be like, <laughs> we out. <laughs> yeah, your heart would like come through your mouth and then you deliver it like on a silver platter. Yeah. I actually remember being at Forest Hill during Western States and having Jim's Strava chart on my phone and just showing it to, to people I trusted and loved and be like, nothing is real. <laughs> but the, the idea being that like some of maybe our preconceived biases were then flipped on their heads. And it, it points out another one too, which is survivorship bias that you were mentioning, um, you know, before we got on, which I didn't actually think about, but it really does apply here where um, the the athletes, if you're throwing all these eggs at the wall and the one that doesn't break is going to be the one that you extrapolate from. And the problem is, you know, if 98 eggs broke, is that a good training philosophy? And the answer is no, obviously, but I think a lot of the times we think it is, and yeah. that's a big problem. Jim Wobsley and Jacob Embrickson, great examples of survivor bias. Like they have sustained the training. They have like been through this like rigorous, like training methodology and come out the other end. And so we can look at them and be like, oh, look at this training methodology. This is great. But we didn't look at the other like 10 years that their body built up and sustained exactly. to get to this point. Um, yeah. And so one, one quick aside, as we're, we're, as we're talking about running, I always want to broaden it down to the r larger scale. So on confirmation bias in general, uh, if you probably heard of Wordle, uh, which is this word game that is like, you get six guesses. I don't really know. Have you played yet? I, I, I have resisted the temptation to play Wordle. And it's kind of surprising. I love words and I love games. And I don't know. I, I just, I feel like screen time i'm like not about it right now i don't like word games i'm like you're trying to trick me motherfuckers i know you, hate, you, you i always try to get you to play scrabble and you're like i can't do it no i can't <laughs> it's just like <laughs> too much mystery going on there i want something that's a little more direct um but this game was bought by the new york times and it's all the rage right now and so as after new york times bought it there was outrage on the internet that this game has been changed it's so much more difficult my streaks are gone all these other things of people just being you know traditional social media outrage Turns out New York Times only made the game easier. They just took out a couple words that people didn't know. They changed the word agora to the word aroma. Um, these aromas more common. Um, and everyone had this this bias, this pre-existing bias that, oh, this will, this will change what I love. And so that was confirmed, even though we have direct evidence in the uh, underlying code that, in fact, they made it easier and took off some, like, uh, questionable words from like a justice perspective. Too. I think that point overlaps so well with what we're talking about here. Also, I got distracted as you're talking about that. Do you know what the word agora means? I, agoraphobia is a oh, word. Oh, true. I don't know what that means though. <laughs> Me I, uh, it's on the, it's one of the spiders? six. No. No. <laughs> I, well, I don't, I mean, I'm not confident in that. No, but it's like on the tip of my brain and I'll think about it. Uh, well, our listeners are thinking, abhor me. This is terrible. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, on the throwing eggs at the wall and how this actually works in practice, I was thinking about the figure skating um, discussion we had last week. So um, the coach was Terry Tudberitsi or something like that, um, who is the coach of all these young Russian girls, I guess, maybe young women. Um, and what I thought was fascinating about her is... So obviously her program in a number of different ways, I don't even want to talk about it because I think it's triggering, is bad and, and somewhat evil, I would even say. She won Skating Coach of the Year in 2020 for the International Skating Union or whatever it's called. And that's total bullshit. Well, it's horrifying when you watch. So Camila Valievo, we actually, we talked about her on the podcast yeah. last week. And as we were recording the podcast, she was performing. And yeah. so it was, it was weird to talk about her and then open our phones at the end of the podcast and be like, how did she do? Uh, she did well in that first program, struggled, struggled in the second program, but it was chilling and heart-wrenching and just so saddening to see her. And so she fell time and time yeah. again in the, is the free skate, right? Yes. I'm, 
I need to catch up on my skating chronology. <laughs> but she fell time and time again and then leaves the ice just totally distraught. And you yeah. can see this coach just ripping into her. Yeah. And it was it was incredibly sad in so many ways. And, and it gets back to some issues with these sports in general. It's like, what are we rewarding? Um, so an example I heard is one of the U.S. skaters. She had a quad when she was young, when she was like 13, 14. Then she got her period and lost her quad. And then she and by quad, you don't mean like she lost her oh, quadriceps yeah. muscle. You mean the, the jump, the, the, the four spins yes. or whatever. Yeah. And um, she decided that she was going to focus on her artistry and maybe getting her back her triple axel, but that that wasn't possible anymore. And it's like the sport needs to change in a fundamental way. And the way we think about youth sports in general needs to shift to not reward this behavior. But on a broader scale, it asks the question, what are we rewarding, both in coaches and in athletes? Um, because if we're rewarding the wrong things, you're going to get bad actors. And you're often going to get those bad actors being celebrated. You're often going to get maybe some bad training philosophy becoming the go-to training philosophy. And I, I really the reason we want to talk about it is because I think we can sometimes fall into the trap on the podcast as we talk about these really cool things of missing out on that. So we want to say that like at its core, all the complexity we're saying is fun. And we're trying to like give you some tools in your toolbox rather than saying, this is what you should do because most likely you'll just be, you know, eggshells and broken yolk. I think that's an incredible point. And I think also gets the idea too, that sometimes I think it's helpful to think about general concepts as yeah. opposed to exact numbers. Like I don't want athletes, you know, we, we share, I, I love the joy of doing math and like doing, like looking <laughs> at these numbers in more specific detail, but I never want an athlete to be out there on a run doing math in their head about yeah. like, what is this exact stimulus? Am I hitting this perfectly? And as we'll get into a head trail running, it actually matters a lot less than on the roads and the track. And I think that's for me, a big reason why like trail running has a lot of allure is the idea that it's, it's different. It's unique and not one specific training principle or training methodology applies. I love that. And maybe that's a really good transition actually to the next broad point is like what we're saying on this topic is that focusing on the very specific nature of stress and stimuli is how exercise physiology works. What we want athletes to do and coaches to do is focus on adaptation rather than stimuli or stress all the time. It's like, what can you do to adapt better? And are you adapting? Um, because all of this stuff that's up in the clouds, that's really fun and really interesting, doesn't mean shit if you're not adapting to it. And the freaks are the ones that often are the best adapters. So we need to be very careful about how we're instituting these things in practice and going back to first principles always, which is keeping most of your training easy, keeping your relative speed high year round, getting your intensity from a mix of sources and not burying yourself into dust because you think that's what's going to lead to the best results when in fact it might just lead to, you know, really negative outcomes. And I think oftentimes in training too, it feels the most sexy to bury that's yourself true. in dust. Like there's all these like Twitter metaphors out there. Like, I don't know if it doesn't hurt, you aren't doing it right. But it's like, <laughs> it really, training should feel good a lot of the time, certainly not yeah. all the time, but I think that's another, and we, we talk about that constantly on here on the podcast, but this topic makes me think of that too. I love that. Okay. So we're going to move on to the big, uh, topic of this week's trail runner article. Another one, it's kind of like a trilogy of articles. So we started with the Norwegian article, which was all about their threshold style training, which is like a threshold with a capital T. Then we talked about Nils Vanderpool, who does one session or one big block in his training that has this massive quantity of threshold work. Now I want to talk about, I don't think for trail runners, this is super relevant. I think it's something we need to think about a lot, but be very careful about how we institute. And this doesn't just apply to trail runners. This also applies to road runners that are running uphill, beginner runners who, you know, are running gets their heart rate this high. I think things get really complicated in these training zones when you're talking about the way a complex training system unfolds in practice. And what I've appreciated about these, this trilogy of articles, it's a trilogy. you could say, and how it relates to, to trail runners is 
throughout this trilogy, you've, you've talked about the idea of embracing the three zone model. Yeah. And to me, as a coach, as an athlete, I am really moving towards the three zone model. Like that's how I structure training. That's how I think about training. I think yeah. certainly there's room and places for the five zone model, but um, just a quick review. So three zone model, um, essentially you can break it down easy, uh, moderate, hard yeah. on the very, very basic level. Um, easy being up to two millimoles lactate production, moderate between two and four, um, and then hard above it. Yeah. In the article you had, I edited it this morning. Uh -huh. a very complex definition of what zone two was by pace. So yeah. for some athletes, zone two could be anywhere from marathon to 10K pace. And the a lot of times we talk about the compression between zones as a sign an athlete is ready for, yeah. for something like a marathon. But I think... The, I just appreciated how you couched this three zone model. Yeah. And so the, how these models are then distributed is what forms a lot of training theory. So training intensity distribution. Um, what we're seeing a lot is that when you look in practice at these athletes, they spend a lot of time in zone two. That's what, that's the threshold training where exactly they are in zone two is something they're dialing in with lactate meters. But the basic theory is most of your training is easy. Some of it is this moderate intensity that um, allows your aerobic system to build up and improve lactate shuttling. And then some of it is hard. And what the main purpose of that is, is to improve mechanical power and output. Um, so as you're doing interval workouts, you shouldn't always be hammering yourself into dust. Um, but you know, when we're talking about the Norwegians, we're saying they're doing this in track workouts and in intervals and all these other things. And I do not think that's the way it applies to trail runners. When you look at things like heart rate monitors, even if you don't have a lactate meter. Um, so to illustrate this, we're going to do some sexy science examples. Um, the first one is from flat running. Uh, this is from a run I did last week on the return from my calf muscle. Um, here in Boulder on rolling terrain, I was at 146 average heart rate at 649 pace. This is like firmly in the middle of zone one, very low for me relative to um, other things. And so that's super interesting. Um, but the main relevant point here is that to get to zone two on my flat workout, I would need to kind of hammer. Like it would feel very fast. Like I would have to push hard and uh, it's a totally different stimulus. It would need a structured workout um, in a way that would be risky, but also, you know, like require a coach to plan. And I think the important point here too, is that you've trained hard for that. Yeah. So you've trained really hard to make your zone one fast. Like that's, that's a fast zone one. Like, especially when you think about the context of those being rolling dirt roads in which you're running. And that's been a lot of work on your part, but I think you can contrast that. So, and I think your, the, your context of data are super fascinating. So you can contrast that with runs that you've done on trails or on Hills. Yeah. And a lot of these are either with myself or Drew, <laughs> your two main training partners, but my boost, um, my two boost. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I love Drew. I'm honored to be a boo with Drew. <laughs> boo with Drew. A boo, a boo with Drew. Um, but so essentially you did a, a long run with Drew. Um, you averaged 162 heart rate for a one hour climb uh, where I forget this was at, um, this was a gold hill, correct? Yes. Sunshine Canyon. So Sunshine Canyon for people here in Boulder. And I think that's really interesting because when doing trail runs, that 162 heart rate running uphill on that one hour run probably felt in some ways easier than that 146 heart rate at 649 pace. Yeah. I mean, what I said in the article is it never felt fast in the same way a flat workout at the same workout would, or heart rate would feel fast. In fact, I've gone six minutes faster on that climb, pushing just a little bit. And when I run with you, for example, and in the I didn't put, include this in the article. These are a little triggering. But when you hurt your heart the, or when the heart pain first started, um, that run, I spent a similar amount of time over 160 into the lower end of zone two and even into the upper end, just following you at an effort that felt easy. Whereas if I had done that same workout on flats, it would have been a fully different experience. And uh, that really changes the game and gets us to the big summary, uh, using me as an example, just because it's a helpful framework. Um, so the idea here is first to run at 160 to 170 heart rate on flats, which would encompass my zone too. 
I'd need to accelerate substantially. The aerobic and musculoskeletal strains would be high. So I'd be getting the aerobic benefits. I'd also be having some injury risk, and it would be a big strain overall that I would need to take easy days on round on both sides. Um, and then to run at 160 or 170 heart rate on steep uphills, I just continue running. Like it doesn't feel hard. That is the weirdest thing. And the aerobic strain is high, but the muscular strain, the mechanical strain is relatively low. It all happens very naturally. And I think that's one of the gifts of trail running is that the mountain in some sense does the work for you. Yes. Like I would much rather, if you gave me the, the scenario of run 165 heart rate on flats versus hills, to me, the perception is way easier on oh. hills because that biomechanical work to turn out power is different. And talk about and the injuries. Hills, the hills helping you in that process. And talk about injuries. Yeah. Like the injury risk is so much lower um, because it's almost like cross training relative to running more so. Um, and then the final point is to run at that 146 heart rate up steep hills. I wrote... I would need an oxygen mask or Russian figure skating su supplements <laughs> um, because it's just not really that possible. And I know that there are training approaches out there that say, you know, you need to stay firmly in zone one, even when you're going up steep hills. It's like, it's just a different sport. You're going to have to walk in ways that are not going to build you up muscularly in a way that will ever help you run fast. Yes, it might be some aerobic development, but if you do that all the time, you're just going to kind of be slow on hills all the time. I like that argument that it's a different sport because I think like in some ways that very, very low level zone one in, in which you have to like, so in order to to sustain that very low level zone one, your biomechanical output has to be so low yeah. that in some ways it approximates cross training more than it does actual trail running. And I think there's obviously a time and place for that. That's, that's great. But I think your point about trail runners naturally being in zone two more it's a, I think when you think about that in context of the Norwegians and the yeah. capital T threshold, it's enticing to me. Yeah. It's like, Ooh, talk about Jim Walmsley, you know? So Jim Walmsley's training often before Western States involves a lot of grand Canyon running. And you can't really tell if there's intervals there might be. Um, but I'm almost sure he's spending a fantastically large amount of time in zone two. He is doing very Norwegian style training, but without necessarily the same structure as the Norwegians. And I bet almost every trail owner is having seen a lot of heart rate data over time, which is a proxy for all this. So big lesson here is make sure you're incorporating that in your understanding of your own training intensity so you don't grind yourself down into dust um, or let yourself get slow. So I think let's let's back this conversation. Let's, let's back it up. <laughs> let's back it up. Let's back this conversation up and go with three takeaways. I love it. Uh, so we'll start with the first one. The first one is just making sure. So as we're thinking about embracing more zone two on hills, to also make sure your body is recovering. That yes. there's enough zone one easy running where you know your muscles are recovering, your body is recovering. You're also in that context treating your your body well. Yeah. Um, and I think we could add fueling. We could add hydration. We could add so many different things. And here. developing your aerobic foundation exactly. might be the most yeah. important part of training of all. Like most of your training should still be in zone. Zone one. Um, but zone two, I think we're starting to see more and more in training theory is not a boogeyman. Oh, <laughs> the boogeyman comes back. Much like lactate. And as a result, like it's okay to embrace it, but to understand you're embracing it. Because what I often see is in athletes is they'll do one of these workouts that would look a lot like one of those Nils Vanderpool workouts where it's like three by 20 minutes of climbs or whatever, or even more. And they're like, oh, this one was normal, easy-ish, easy mod, you know, like, and the point being, okay, no, that's actually a workout. And that is essential to understand and how it fits into aerobic development because your aerobic system can erode away if you do this all the time. And I think for trail runners too, it's not about thinking in, of runs in terms of black and white. Yes. So like an easy moderate run on the weekend, like for example, a 16 mile long run, easy moderate, yeah. will have components of both zone one and zone two in there. And that's a great thing. Like it doesn't have to be that you're staying at zone one the entire time. Yeah. Um, and certainly there are points where like, you know, having that low level aerobic development is helpful. But I think also to just not thinking about this in purely in terms of like black and white training and giving that body, the body, the room for gradation. Yeah. Because the body doesn't adapt in silos. So that's perfect. Um, so 
two, account for time spent in zone two running uphill and don't layer in zone two climbing with too many traditional workouts. Um, I think this is maybe the most important part. It's like, if you look at a traditional road athlete or an athlete training in Florida, um, you often have to add in two slightly more intense stimuli a week. They could be very gentle, intense stimuli, but you can't just run easy the rest of the time. Whereas if an athlete is running in the hills, their training can look like a lot of what you see in trail running, mm-hmm. which is people historically have excelled at the very top level and they're like, oh, well, they don't do any workouts. So the point is, yeah, they're doing workouts. They're just doing them intuitively in ways that are probably approximating pyramidal training distributions or threshold training distributions, much like the Norwegians. And that's so cool. And they're doing it by accident. Yeah. yeah. Or, or the, intuitively or by accident. Yeah. Or, yeah. And, and who knows what, what exactly it's coming from. It's just not to delude ourselves into thinking running up that hill is pure zone one easy or saying I need to go so slow all the time that I just become someone that's like, every time I see a hill, I'm like, well, I guess I got to walk now because that's what I'd have to do. If I want to be at 146 heart rate, like you're not going to make me do that unless like you're grabbing me by the butt and pushing me up the whole time. Especially. And I think this conversation becomes more relevant at altitude too. We're running up a hill at altitude, you know, cardiovascularly more taxing. Um, And so I think that's another interesting point too, but that's actually a great dovetail into the third point, which is the idea that you still, so even though, you know, in trial running or working zone one, zone zone two naturally on hills, you still need that foundation of speed development in order to provide the neuromuscular stimulus and the overall running economy of stimulus to be efficient off the hills. And I think sometimes like, as we've often seen like elite road and track runners come into trail running and have pretty wild immediate success because they're bringing in those different things. And sometimes as athletes get farther away from that road and track background, the success can start to erode just slightly in trail running, perhaps because they're not working that zone three quite as much and they're not working that speed development quite as much. You're so smart. I missed that in the article fully. That would have been such a perfect example. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and I I think it gets the point that the people that do this relatively unstructured training are usually going to be relatively speed talented people. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Much like the MAF training we've talked about in the past, if you're not speed talented, you need to keep reinforcing that speed or all of the aerobic development in the world will just correlate to slower and slower paces. Um, And I like to, maybe the final framework is to think about it on the framework of the cell versus like the system. So on the cellular level, the zone two that you're doing climbing, while there's a lot of gradations within zone two and it gets complicated at the margins, to the cell, the lactate shuttling process is probably very similar to the track workouts the Norwegians are doing um, to a certain extent. To the system, to the muscle complex, to how the body interacts with the ground, it's fully different. Um, and being aware of that difference is essential because you need to be developing your speed or that the system's level adaptations, the neuromuscular, or the musculoskeletal will just collapse around you and you'll be an aerobic monster that runs slow. That's a great point. And I think that's why we've often worked in for our double threshold workouts that we give sparingly to some athletes. We use the uphill treadmill sometimes in that situation because it has less system impacts, but still impacts the cell in the way that we're looking for. And I think it's, that's kind of a a neat way that we've adapted. it. Yeah. And maybe the the big zoom out thing here to, to, you know, to back it up one more time, back it up, back (laughs) it up is relative to injury discussion. You know, that there is no one right answer about how to train. Uh, not just in a general system sense, but also in the individual athlete over time. And that's liberating. And so as you're thinking about your own training, understand that you are working in these across these uh, gradations of different zones, and you don't need to spend a certain amount of time in each to make it the perfect session. Just be aware of your general framework, how that interacts with your adaptation, and hopefully staying healthy over time. Okay, I'm digging the term gradation. I'm ah. visualizing like, you know, Canva or any like art software that you use yeah. online that has that circular thing of all the different colors. And I'm picturing that about I'm picturing that in terms of training. I love that so much. I, I very rarely think in terms of art, but 
I could I could see like a fun a fun way to bring that into training somehow. Yeah, a little bit of just your your blood flow has been reduced a little bit, so your brain is firing off all these unique things. It's like a near death experience. Just trying to put fuchsia everywhere. <laughs> just add as much color as possible. Um, and so the uh, transition to the final big topic um, that I think is also relevant because as you're thinking about these complex training topics it can get overwhelming. Um, even now, after all these years coaching, I sometimes am like, am I doing it right? Uh, am I interpreting this right? It's why every time I release an article, I have you know the stress farts about what's going to be wrong in the article because it's complicated. I probably wake up once a week at midnight having a nightmare and being like, training theory. Is, yeah. it, is something going wrong? Like, Am I doing it right? And I think- Or science in general. But I think that's the, the beautiful thing about training and the struggle about training theory too is it's also constantly evolving. And so you're yeah. constantly thinking about new ways in which you can apply that. And it feels both overwhelming and it also makes you excited and it makes you wake up at midnight being having an existential crisis. Yeah. yeah. And if we had the same conversation on threshold training for trail runners five years ago, we'd come to very similar conclusions, but we'd use different language to describe it because of how the science has changed and how our own understandings have evolved, which gets to the big idea here, which is starting coaching. Um, in that a lot of the barriers to entry, I think, you can put by the wayside and not worry about. So we've gotten a bunch of questions on this. We're going to uh, summarize a few and respond to each of them for everyone out there that's interested in the art science field of coaching. Um, so the first question was, are there any coaching trainings, certificates, classes, ETC you, that you would recommend? Or in your experience, is the best way to have more of a sports medicine background? This from listener A. Um, and basic answer there is no on all fronts. Uh, and you know, I think that those barriers to entry, the, that gatekeeping mechanism is really unessential because the idea of coaching is that it is so multifaceted, it involves so many different skills that someone with a different background can be great at it as long as they're curious and continue learning. And I think that can be an advantage in some ways because you're looking at a field through a different light. And I think that allows you to come to different conclusions yeah. that can be advantageous as long as you have that baseline support. But what were you saying there about language, I think is a curious point because sometimes I think the language itself is ah. a barrier to entry. There yeah, are yeah. all these complicated words in exercise physiology. And I don't think you necessarily need to understand the root of each word to have a productive feel and an intuitive feel for coaching. And I think you should work to do that oh. over time. But at the start, certainly that's impossible. And we don't it would even be like now. Opening I mean, an English dictionary and being like, I need to read this whole thing before I take the SATs. Like yeah. that just can't happen. I mean, your background is bonkers, right? Like everyone understands that. Like you're Stanford doctor, Stanford PhD, you do epidemiology, you do sports medicine. Like you are as directly uh, overlapping with this as you can possibly be. Well, that being said, there are people who come at me and like, well, what's your coaching certification? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what is your level? I mean, I don't even know. There's like specific level of coaching certifications. And I'm like, I don't, I don't have a specific can you, coaching certification. Can you give certification. your Stanford MD um, <laughs> diploma? In that case, I feel like you should. Um, it's kind of the ultimate trump card. Uh, obviously, they come at me with that more more directly because like, I don't have that background at all. I do have a science background, but not, not specifically in exercise phys. Um, but one thing I think is interesting is even you, with all this understanding, your brain is like a textbook. Um, you could explain any of this in great detail. Uh, we were talking about lactate threshold, this term of art in training. It's a piece of jargon that can feel like a barrier to entry. Lactate threshold does not just mean like one-ish hour effort like we've talked about. Sometimes- It can mean uh, 14 different things. My favorite book that I'm going to recommend you read is Scientific Training for Endurance Athletes. It just came out in early January. It's a great textbook. They refer to lactate threshold as what we would necessarily be something closer to aerobic threshold, the first lactate threshold. So in other words, it means different things in coaches, coaching communities and exercise physiology research and a lot of jargon works like that. So try not to be intimidated by jargon. Um, the goal is to learn by doing and keep 
keep learning. Um, but my favorite place to start that is not a certification. It is in reading and immersing yourself in this topic so that you can learn in an iterative fashion as you develop more data points over time. And we have tons of bookshelves on our on our shelf that we both read through and we've talked yeah. about. We have dinner table conversations about these books, like weird, uh, I don't know, weird coaching nerds. And <laughs> what what would be like the top books that you recommend? To, to so that main one, coach? that one that just came out, I think is the best current uh, introduction to the literature in some of the underlying physiology. So Science of Training for Endurance Athletes by Dr. Philip Skiba. Skiba. Um, it's available on Amazon. Um, really highly recommend it. Uh, you know, I, and again, it gets, don't follow everything to a T. He's also presenting his opinions, but it's a good introduction to jargon, terminology, understanding of where it all fits in in the broader exercise phys research field. Um, the other one is um, The Science of Running by Steve Magnus. I still think that's one of the best. The science has changed. I think it's like 10 years old now to a certain extent, um, but it's brilliant. It's a way that mixes the science of physiology with the art of coaching and you bring them together and you get like a really good combo. And then on the far end, on the coaching end is Daniel's running formula, which has been updated a number of times. Um, and that's really focusing on the coaching specifics. Um, and again, none of this is for training theory necessarily. Like, I think you, you need to develop that over time on your own and learn from people like us that have practiced and we're learning from others and incorporate all the experts out there. Um, but it's more about giving you the base from which you can develop your own training theory. And that's why I tell all coaches, I don't want you to be a offshoot of the swap coaching tree of like David and Megan Roach. I want you to have your own coaching tree and develop it, maybe starting with some of our principles, but create something new because there's no reason you can't be a better and smarter and more curious coach than I am. That's an incredible point. I also think too, so I think not everyone loves reading textbooks. I kind of think you do have to read books yeah. to some extent. And that's like, there, it's kind of like school, like you, there's no real spark notes version that's going to allow you to do well. I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe like the top student who's like brilliant can figure out a spark notes version to get around it. But I think also following people on Twitter too. Yeah. So top exercise physiologists on Twitter, top scientists, um, top coaches on Twitter, great people to, to read and see how they interact and what different thoughts they're coming up with. And I think a lot of that too takes some of these textbook textbook principles and applies them in a way yeah. that can become more tangible. And also final thing on this general topic uh, on this first question is read things critically, like understand that when we say something, even if we sound like we're the ultimate expert, it's there's debates on it. And when you read <laughs> yeah. something from other people, there are people out there that will write things and we're like, well, I think that's totally wrong and actually counterproductive. And the point being that everything operates in these gray areas. And if you, if someone thinks that something is purely black or purely white, they're probably trying to get your credit card number soon. Um, so, you know, get comfortable in the gray area and not knowing everything. And also understanding that whatever you develop can be the next breakthrough training theory. It doesn't have to necessarily always come from someone who isn't quote expert because Sometimes they might just be good at acting like they're experts, including us. Yes, and true. And also final real quick point on this topic is the idea too that coming from many different fields, I think yeah. can be productive for oh, coaching. So, so I've seen people come from the field of education, psychology, uh, science, yeah. like hardcore science backgrounds, I think translate well to understanding the the scientific principles of training. Um, obviously exercise physiology, medicine, great fields to come from. And I think, you know, don't, don't feel like your educational background or what you study is a limitation yeah. in this process. I mean, yeah. I was trying to, as you were saying, that, I was like, what profession do I think would sneakily be one of the best coaches? I think elementary school teacher, yeah, perhaps you know, or something like that. Yeah, um, because what is coaching but teaching? Or I mean, or patience or consistency. Yeah, yeah. and showing up. Yeah, the point being, every single thing that coaching is such a multifaceted skill set. It's not like being a doctor where you're diagnosing someone with. 
cancer. You know, um, this is something that has so many different skills in it. You need to understand your weaknesses and develop those weaknesses. Um, but also understand your strengths and embrace your strengths. And don't let someone tell you that just because your strengths don't overlap, overlap exactly with what they decided to do in undergrad, that you are any less than or unworthy because you can be the best fucking coach ever. Um, okay. So the second question on that overall topic, um, is what do we ask athletes to journal, um, is the overarching thing. This is from listener Jay. Um, and this gets to like some of the mechanics of coaching, which I think is necessary before we talk about how to actually get athletes in the first place. Um, and so my idea with this, and this is another place where other people might differ is try to limit as many, the barriers between you and the athlete as humanly mm -hmm. possible, yep. especially in remote coaching, obviously. Yep. It's like as much communication as you can have with the athlete, the better. Like the magic happens in the back and forth, not in the analysis. Because like, you know, as we were talking about before, the body doesn't adapt in silos. So the analysis often simplifies really complex narratives that the physiology doesn't understand. What you really want to know is how the athlete feels and how the athlete's developing and how their mental health is and all these other things. So what we do is we're just like, tell us what you did. Tell us how you felt. Tell us how your life's going, if you're comfortable with that, and tell us about your health. And we ask those four things every day. Some athletes fill in with a great amount of information. Other athletes fill in with two words. But over the course of a coaching relationship, it really creates a beautiful synergy where you know I feel like we can understand how an athlete is going to respond to new and unique interventions better than like any textbook would ever indicate. And I think for me too, as a coach, I personally just enjoy that yeah, as well. Like I think in some sense, it's like 50% thinking about training theory, thinking about structure in the training plan and 50% just freaking being there for someone as they go through the ups and downs of life and training. And I think there's an element of showing up for someone when they're struggling or when, you know, training is, is, you know, a struggle or any, any number of things in life can be challenging and showing up for them again and again and again, that makes it just like a really fruitful and rewarding conversation outside of any of yeah. this training theory. Well, and I also think it's great for learning. Not yeah. that I say that, you know, actually Ali Wong. But learning at like random tidbits about life. Like yeah. the number of times I come out from an athlete's log and they teach me something about like poetry or wolves. I, <laughs> I, like it's just like random topics that are like, so cool and beautiful and unique. And I, I, I don't know, I feel like I learned something truly unique from each other. But also physiology and training yeah. theory. Like, yeah. you know, all of this ends up being pattern recognition because anyone can read a book. The question is, how do you put that into practice over the course of years? How do you zoom out to the, or zoom into the micro cycle, zoom out to the meso cycle and, uh, or meso cycle. Ugh. I was like, whoa. This is the problem with, the problem with jargon is sometimes you read it and you don't say it and you're not sure how to say well, it. Well, it's possible meso cycle means 10 different things. Yeah. And so you're, you're not wrong, you know? Oh yeah. I think it, I think it means. That's actually, I feel like sometimes when, when things mean multiple different things, it's an amazing cop out because like, yeah. if it means 15 different things, your chances of getting it right are much higher. <laughs> That's so true. Um, but. As I was as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about Ali Wong, who was talking. This is you know, this is the end of the podcast, uh, but she was talking about um, women that are high power often have trouble finding relationship. I partners. love this conversation. Yeah, and she was like, "Men in this room, have any of you had your dick sucked by a millionaire? <laughs> Straight men in this room." And she's she like, "No." And why not? It's like you know, she's got money, she's got power, she's got respect, she's smart. You think she's not good at power pattern recognition? She could be really good at sucking, blah, blah, blah. Um, that was a terrible example of her joke. But the idea being that like coaching is pattern recognition of, of recognizing these complex patterns. Give yourself as many reps as possible. So that's why we do like a Google spreadsheet back and forth um, rather than systems that require a little bit more barrier to entry. And we try to do it as constantly as possible over time. And I think systems that require a little bit more barrier to entry are just overwhelming for the athlete. Like 
I don't want to have to learn, like as an athlete coming into a program, like I don't want to have to learn a new complicated system. Like I want to be able to update it like right then and there on the fly, make it easy. So I think there's also can be, I mean, I think there's different places for different systems, but I do like the spreadsheet. Well, I think our entire purpose, yeah. coaching tree or whatever, like all the, I mean, we've helped many, many dozens of coaches that we coach help get started out as their own businesses. They all use our model. So it works. Other models work too. But as you're starting out, you don't need to start complex, right? You can start simple and then adapt it based on what your needs are over time. Um, and then the the big question, I think that's the hardest one of all is the last one that everyone's probably asking themselves, do you have any advice for getting started in general? Um, because the barrier to entry seems high. And this is from listener R. Um, so, I, you know, this is a place where we need to check our privilege is, is what I was saying. Like when it comes to my, so like when I put, you know, the coaching ad up online, people reached out and that's because there was like a baseline understanding of background of like, you know, approach. I'd put a lot of stuff out there online over time. And that created a system that is different than a lot of people have, where it can be very hard to get your first few athletes that you need to start the chain reaction of getting more athletes. I, I agree. I But though that being said, I totally agree it's a privilege, but I also argue the fact that you were like, you put yourself out there. Like <laughs> you did it repeatedly and repeat, like it was hard to miss what you were doing in a way that I imagine like you might cringe at now, but that was fundamental to our growth and to like being able to start this and launch this. It's so fucking cringeworthy. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the hard part of all this. It's, it's like starting any business, right? Like I think often it's the effortless perfection things we talked about in the past. People are encouraged. It's like, oh, this will come to you or, you know, a lot of coaches, not a lot, but some coaches in this world will even say like, what gives this person the right to coach, which makes people like scared to put themselves out there. And you kind of have to just put yourself out there in like an aggressively cloying way in a way that w will rub some people the wrong way. I mean, the first couple of years of swap was characterized by some people that are established in the field saying mean things about me and my credentials. And it's like, well, scoreboard, um, but also, <laughs> you know, it hurt and it's yeah. hard and I've talked about it before. And so how do, how does that work for people that might not even have that baseline? And I think it gets back to what you said, you need to put yourself out there. You need to find the best places to put yourself out there. You need to do it repeatedly and not be, uh, you know, deterred by rejection. And it doesn't always have to be social media either. Yeah. So, I mean, you can go to races, you can go to in-person events and like set up a booth, advertise what you're doing. Like, and I can think of any number of ways, whether that's, you know, local run clubs or just tons of different opportunities to also be in person too. Yeah. And some people are more like our coaching, it's more based on remote coaching. Yeah. Um, and some people are more in-person coaches too. And I think it's important to understand where you want to fall on that trajectory yeah. as well. And coaching people that, you know, like a lot of the people that I've seen that start out that might not be professional athletes that have like a following or writers or whatever is they're coaching people they know first mm -hmm. yep. often for free and the, once you get a few athletes that's when you can say hey may you tell your friends about this like trying to create a, a system not like luro where it's like a pyramid <laughs> yeah. uh, but some sort of you know thing that means every single athlete you get can lead to more athletes and you know that's the hard part i think for anyone that's starting out right in the moment is how do you get those first few um so you, the big thing takeaway I want to have is you have to be shameless um, and you have to be shameless in a way that might eat at your soul sometimes and make you feel like you're a bad person. Um, I messaged people back then. I mean, you were sliding into DMs. I was, and you know, it was essential. Like I, as much as I'm like, now I cringe at it. It's like, that's what it took. And I think that's kind of what it takes for everyone. Unless they come from like, unless they have like a lot of some sort of privileged background when it comes to the running community more generally. So, um, you know, just know that as you're going through it, like you are enough as you are, keep putting yourself out there, keep taking risks. And, um, the more you do that, I think 
if you express this enthusiasm, this love, it will work, um, but it might take a little longer than you might want. And, and you have to stick with it. And I think this is specifically the topic of coaching. And if you've stuck with us to this point and you're not interested in coaching, congratulations, yeah. you made it. But I think this topic also applies to starting to hustling at anything. Like yeah. you think about starting, a, you know, a, a business, starting anything um, that's young and it's in, in its infancy. And I think these topics or apply. athletics more generally. That's true. You yeah. know, you have to be shameless because it's just a it's so hard and painful for a while, and you just grow. And as you then you look back ten years later and you're like, oh my god, what was I doing? I knew nothing, or I had so much to learn and grow kind of like we're probably going to be with your heart eventually mm -hmm, yeah. and um you know so maybe coaching is a good good metaphor for everything also really quick aside is the idea too i was having this conversation with an athlete sponsored athletes often have to reach out to companies it's very rare that a company yeah. comes to an athlete and says oh hey i want to sponsor you unless <laughs> it's like jim wamsley winning western states and so don't feel shameless in that process either you know what i mean like yeah, so don't feel shameful in that yeah yes yeah, <laughs> end of the podcast but yeah yeah you know reach out to companies like show your swag build a resume great way to get sponsored awesome. Awesome. So we're going to move on to Listener Corner. Before we do that, just say, please rate, review, subscribe, especially subscribe to the podcast. If you've gotten this far, you're like our loyal, loving uh, compatriots. And uh, this podcast has been taking off. That's all because of you. Hopefully we can bring a lot of love into the world. But every little thing you can do, especially five-star ratings, subscriptions, and you know sharing with your friends means a ton to us. And this many outline labor of love that we've been doing over time. It truly means a lot. Do you want to go to Listener Corner to end it? Let's do it. I'm going to have you read this one. I feel a little short of oxygen. I feel like your reading skills are going to swag-tastic beat mine right now. So this ends up being... I'll pass the baton to you. Yeah, this ends up being a lot more uh, topical than it was planned to be when I first put this in prior to your MRI. I really wanted to thank you both for sharing Megan's health journey and also sharing um, how both of you have felt throughout this process. I have a close friend, well, family really at this point, who's going some, through some pretty major health stuff too. Your conversations and openness have helped me learn how I can show up for that friend the way she needs. Um, David, you'd mentioned some tough situations, looking forward to that upside and finding the things to do to move toward resolution, which I think is how I approach challenging situations. Um, in this scenario, the one thing that aimed at a quote resolution that I can do, um, I'm doing. Um, and the outcome of that is still totally out of my control. But other than that, the best thing I can do is show up in a super authentic and vulnerable way, hold space, and really be there. It's a big difference from how I usually approach these situations, and I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, you've also modeled and normalized talking about quite literally everything, and I'm really grateful to you both for that. In some of my relationships, walking to that space has opened up so many amazing doors and helped me slash them grow in ways I could not have envisioned. These things are hard and scary, and I think some things do remain hard and scary especially in the context of health issues. It's important to acknowledge that and see things as they are. But hearing you talk about these things make those hard and scary things feel a lot, let, lot more, quote, uh, dot, 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 not easy, but doable. And not from an outcome perspective, but knowing that we'll find a way through each day. I'm not sure how things will work out, but what I do know is that I know that much, that, that I can show up for someone I love. Thank you so much, listener. Thank you for reading that. And thank you, listener A. That was beautiful. I just, I love that idea about, you know, showing up and finding a way to walk through each day yeah. and, you know, doing that and whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we're speaking to people who are struggling across a variety of different circumstances yeah. and, and doing that and being there for friends and family who navigate that too. Megan, you've modeled courage and openness um, for me in a way that like, I'll always be indebted to you in my own life. And 
you know, this is going to be a journey and every day I'll be there for you. Sometimes I'll go to the other room to sleep. Oh, thank you. That, I'll okay. be out there opening, opening cans, getting <laughs> in, st- infinite, infinitely closer to your door as I do so. You're going to get the Fritos box and just... <laughs> and it's like, David, I promise I'm in bed. This is normal behavior. You might not come to see me, but Addie certainly will. That's true. Awesome. Well, we love you all. Thank you for showing up for us. We're huge fans of everything you do and have the best freaking day. Woohoo! Woohoo! Bye.